Hello, everyone. Welcome to Episode 7 of Multiple Calls. I'm Scott Hewlett. You know, one of the best skills you can learn and practice is flexible thinking. It's the key to growth and improvement in any facet of life. This is what we mean by being open-minded. Once you've opened your mind, the next best skill is critical thinking. Couple those fundamentals with regular exposure to varying perspectives, and you have a recipe that produces efficiency, good morals and ethics, strong relationships, and purpose and contentment. Among the many firefighting fundamentals that my guest this episode has honed, he's become unconsciously competent in these two. He's been in the fire service as a career and volunteer for 17 years. He's taught all over Canada and the USA for take-the-door training, fire department training network, FDIC, and various other conferences. And he's an instructor in Canada for Spartan Rescue. We talk about senior firefighters, leaders, mentors, and lacrosse. We touch on hiring practices and the distinction between a fire station and a firehouse and the pivotal role that that plays in our hearts and minds. We cover training do's and don'ts and what our service is doing better than ever. Lastly, he was kind enough to cover a few calls that are certain to give you chills and goosebumps. Let's force this door and get into it. Let's meet Andrew Broussard. Brass, how's it going? It's going awesome, man. Beautiful day today. Nice. I'm glad you're here. Thanks for coming up. This is the first time we've actually met face-to-face, so I think we've had a little bit of a social media interaction and yep. connection through uh, Kitties. Yeah, my boy. It's nice to finally sit across from you and have a little bit of a chat. Absolutely. You grew up in the in the house right across from the firehouse that you work at. Yeah, you know, so uh, you know, a lot of people that get on the job, you know, um, they find different paths to get on the on the fire department. And uh, for myself, uh, I pretty much knew that I wanted to be a firefighter uh, as long as I can remember. Um, I grew up in a complex right across the street uh, in Milton, Ontario, right across the street from Station One. Uh, you know, and I was one of those run to the curb kids, right? You know, I used to. Uh, Every time I'd hear the siren go, I uh, run down to the end of the street and watch. You know, I can still remember watching the old uh, Snorkel One driving down the road. It was an old Tebow, <laughs> yellow, slime yellow, gross-looking colored truck, but it was uh, it was the greatest fire truck in the world to me, right? And I used to run down and well, used to watch it drive by, and um, yeah, I can still remember those things. And uh, you know, it was kind of interesting and kind of cool to. Uh, the first firehouse I ever worked at was that firehouse. So yeah, how crazy. Yeah. Do you um, still live close to it, or? Uh, no. S- since then, uh, you know, when I was probably in uh, my late teens, uh, my family moved across town, and then, uh, um, you know, probably about ten years ago, I m- uh, left Milton and moved up to uh, uh, Fergus, Ontario. So. Oh, beautiful. Just to kind of get out of the big city and. I mean, it's not a huge city, but... Yeah, I grew up in Orangeville, so... Uh, oh, okay, yeah. yeah. My hometown's close to where you're at now. Ah, very good. I, w- I love Orangeville, too. I used to, uh, uh, you know, grew up playing lacrosse, so Orangeville is a huge lacrosse community, so I used to frequent Orangeville quite often, but... So you weren't, uh, you weren't alone in your love for community service and the fire service. You had a family connection. Yeah, so my, uh, my mother, uh, she spent 36 years uh, working as a nurse with Milton Hospital. Uh, my father... Um, when he was young, he started out uh, working as a uh, volunteer paramedic in the city of Georgetown. Um, and my uncle, um, my dad's brother, he uh, is still a fire uh, fire chief up in Gravenhurst, but he started in Halton Hills as a volunteer, worked his way up to uh, deputy chief there. Uh, it was kind of interesting. He actually became the chief of Milton, uh, you know, about 10 years after I got on. So it was kind of an interesting uh, thing, but... Um, 
you know, my uncle, he was, uh, you know, I definitely would say that, you know, my family in general has a huge role in, uh, you know, in me becoming a firefighter, but I think my uncle, um, you know, definitely, excuse me, had a huge, uh, kind of role. He, um, not only was he a firefighter, but he's a huge, you know, what we call a fire buff, right? Like he's into the job, huge, uh, used to collect all kinds of different things from all over the, uh, all over the world, different fire, uh, memorabilia, helmets, coats, uh, model fire trucks, pictures. He was a huge photographer back then. And, uh, yeah, I used to remember going over to his house and down in his basement, he had all this stuff. And I can remember, you know, every time I'd go there, I'd walk around and look at all the pictures of these, you know, salty old dudes up on roofs with their coats wide open, you know, no masks on cutting roofs and stuff like that. And I was just, I was just in love with the job right from that moment. And, uh, you know, ever since I was a really young kid. So, did uh, your folks bring you around the workplaces or your uncle to the fire station? Like, were you actually brought into those places or was it more of a, an exposure from a distance? Um, I mean, my mom, uh, I used to go have lunch with her all the time at the hospital. Um, you know, we used to go down there and I used to visit her all the time. I knew all the, the you know, the, the women that she worked with. You know, my mother was very close friends with a lot of them, still is to this day, uh, even though she's now retired. So, yeah, I mean, I, I used to hang out at the hospital all the time and, you know, see that end of it. And, uh, yeah, I used to stop by and visit my uncle at the firehouse all the time. I mean, the type of person that I am, I mean, I'm still this way now. My wife always jokes that we don't go on vacation. We just visit firehouses all over the world. <laughs> um, you know, I still stop in, you know, every time I get a chance to, to, you know, to check out a firehouse, you know, do a little buffing. So, yeah, it's a big part of who I am. So Have you been to any major ones that uh, stand out for you? You know, some of the big ones that, uh, you know, again, they, they help shape who I am really as a firefighter. Uh, Engine 69, Ladder 28 in Harlem, the Harlem Hilton. You know, that's probably where I first got my addiction to my love of uh, forcible entry. You know, if you go down in the basement of that firehouse, um, they have some, you know, just absolutely amazing props all over the basement. And, uh, you know, I used to go down there and the guys would take me under their wing and kind of show me how to force doors and stuff like that. You know, like legends on the job too, like Captain Robert Morris, uh, you know, Ray McCormick, just absolutely true pioneers of the fire service. Our ladder 28, uh, engine 69 kind of always stood out as an amazing place for me. Me and a good friend of mine who's a Vaughn firefighter. Uh, we took a trip down after nine 11 and went to uh, rescue two in the, in uh, Brooklyn, Again, just another absolutely amazing firehouse. Firehouse has had a fire crew in it for more than 100 years, right? And just to walk into that firehouse and the amount of fire duty that those guys are running. Some salty, salty good good dudes there, good firemen. Yeah, and for anybody up here to say that we shouldn't be looking to them to how to do business, that's a huge mistake. Absolutely. I, I think that one of the big things that I kind of notice in the, the Canadian fire service is if you think about it, the average, even big city, in Ontario 30 years ago 40 years ago they weren't that big uh, you know we've had a tremendous huge growth in the fire service and in in the cities in general uh, in the last probably even 30 or 40 years so a lot of guys in some of the big cities in the GTA those fire departments 30 years ago were mostly volunteer when you think about a city like New York City they've they've had their culture traditions ingrained in that city for you know 160 years we tend to lack a lot of firehouse culture, I think, because it's fairly new. There's firehouses, you know, when I drive through Milton, there's a firehouse in a field I used to ride my dirt bike through. Houses in areas that, yeah, were cornfields 10 years ago. 
so as the fire you know service rapidly grows i think that uh you know a lot of the firehouse culture is kind of lost yeah we can definitely look down there and we can definitely learn things that will help us in the firehouse culture things like the kitchen table how important the kitchen table is down there yeah and i definitely want to get there yeah how important a lot of other things are like the senior man how important that is how important you know company pride is you know and i think a lot of that stuff is missing up here let's touch back to you growing up were you working in school how how did that go were you working towards it right from the very beginning did you have an idea what you had to do how was that path for you uh, it was kind of an interesting path. Uh, you know, I would most definitely, you know, I'd be lying if I told you I was a good student. You know, I, uh, <laughs> you know, in high school, my priorities were playing lacrosse and that was pretty much it. You know, I played, uh, you know, lacrosse at a high level, I played junior A, junior B lacrosse. And that was kind of my focus. You know, I, I never really did well in school because I felt like I was learning things that I was never going to use. Even to this day, I mean, I struggle. If if I got to learn hazmat and I feel like I'm not going to ever use that stuff, I struggle to learn it. You know, I, I struggle along the way, with, you know, through high school and stuff like that. And uh, to be totally honest, I was probably on my way to not graduating at all. I had a teacher. Uh, she was a co-op teacher. And she just kind of said, you know, like, sat me down one day and she kind of said, what do you want to do with your life? And I said, well, you know, I've always wanted to be a firefighter my whole life. And she said, okay, well, let's get you a co-op placement and let's, you can go to the firehouse and instead of getting an English credit here, go get an English credit sitting at the firehouse, write something about, you know. A different kind of English. A different kind of English. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> right. So, um, so yeah, I took that advantage. I went there and uh, I ended up taking it two years in a row. So my entire two last years of high school, instead of spending them at uh, the high school, I spent them at the firehouse every day. Um, and to be honest, it's probably the only reason today that I graduated, <laughs> but, uh, you know, she definitely, uh, she definitely changed my life when the uh, opportunity came, uh, the, the Milton fire department was hiring, uh, volunteer firefighters, uh, at the time they were hiring only for station one, which is the station I grew up across uh, the street from. Uh, but my family had moved across town. I actually moved out of my house when I was 17 years old, moved into a, uh, awful, awful ratty uh, apartment building lived there on when i was 17 years old got on the volunteer fire department you know i was working three jobs just to make ends meet yeah did was a volunteer there for a year before i got hired full-time so, so was that uh was that moving out you know into your own place working three jobs to to make ends meet was that a was that a huge wake-up call from your childhood or were you uh were you brought up sort of with that uh work ethic to start with that self self-sufficiency yeah, I mean, uh, you know, both my parents, you know, had to work extremely hard to, to kind of raise me and my brother. Uh, you know, my mom worked shift work, right? So she was either usually at work or uh, she was sleeping, right? If she was working nights, she was sleeping during the day. Um, my dad, you know, he was the type of guy, you know, went to work at 5 o'clock every morning and didn't get home till 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock every night, right? So, yeah, you know, so, yeah, me and my brother, we took care of ourselves and um, my father you know, growing up, he was a, he was a fairly handy man. You know, we used to, uh, you know, everything in the house that was broken, we fixed it. Right. You know, I can remember crawling underneath the car with my dad, you know, doing brake jobs, doing oil changes and stuff like that out in the driveway. Um, At what age, what age did that start? Man, I can remember doing that when I was young. I can remember laying on my skateboard and using it as a creeper to get underneath the car, you know, and that was really important to my dad that, you know, he taught that stuff to us forever grateful for him for that. Uh, My dad also was the 
kind of the handy local handyman in the condominium that we lived in. So he used to, you know, go around and fix decks and, you know, p- people had plumbing problems, he would fix them. So, you know, I'd tag along and I'd be handing them, you know, wrenches and torches and all that kind of different stuff and helping fix decks. And, um, you know, so I did that stuff my whole life. And also we had a, a cottage up in Huntsville, uh, my grandparents had, and we used to go up there and do a lot of uh, work up there every summer. We pretty much spend every summer up there, you know. Again, I was probably 10 years old, cutting firewood with a chainsaw, you know, splitting firewood, swinging an axe, working all day, fixing the deck, fixing the dock, all that kind of stuff. And I always just loved it, you know, the hard work kind of aspect of it. So you had a real, uh, you know, see a project or see a problem and and fix it and then have the gratification of seeing it done. Yeah, absolutely, right? So, um, you know, and then getting to do that same kind of stuff with my own kids, right, is is, is pretty is pretty special. It's pretty amazing too, right? So... Where were you working originally? Uh, you said you were working those three jobs. What was going on there before you? Uh... Yeah, so uh, I got a job uh, cleaning confined spaces for uh, you know a large uh, petrochemical company. Company, so yeah, <laughs> that was just an awful, awful job. Um, but yeah, you know it 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 humbles you, right? It lets you know that hey, there you know every day at the firehouse is better than one day going back and doing that. So I did that. Um, you know, I was a volunteer firefighter, so I was, you know, responding to calls and uh, training and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I also worked for uh, a training company. I was uh, called Dart Rescue from back in the day, and, you know, we used to teach rope rescue. I was a big rope rescue kind of guy. Um, so we used to do that quite a bit. And uh, the other one was I was a, did a bit of roofing. Two, three days a week, I'd go out and help out uh, a friend of mine who had owned a roofing company at the time. So I go out there, bump shingles, bang nails, strip roofs, all that kind of good stuff. And you got, uh, obviously, uh, by doing the volley thing at the same time, you got that experience of uh, kicking out of bed in the middle of the night. Yep. Working tired the next day. Absolutely. Right. It's all part of the job, right? So, um, yeah, I mean, I can definitely remember, you know, we had a barn fire one night. I was out there all night, literally got home, showered, went and did a, two roofs that day. You know, absolutely horrible. <laughs> <laughs> Grit. Right. Yeah. I think that's a that's a huge thing that you were built that was built into you or was already there and then was augmented right through your childhood and through your early years. Where I think I really, you know, where I really got grit from, and I think that grit is one of the things that's missing in a lot of people these days. Where I think it was really instilled in me was first year I played junior lacrosse. Uh, so I you know always say one of the biggest mentors I've ever had was my first lacrosse coach. Paul Suggett, you know, a very old school lacrosse player, very salty dude. If you weren't into the game, if you weren't there to work your butt off, he had zero time for you. Very hard, hard man to get to know. Very hard man to to like for a lot of people. A lot of high expectations. Very high expectations. So when he, you know, he's a Canadian lacrosse Hall of Famer. Um, he played pro for the Maryland Arrows back in the seventies and eighties. Uh, he was the type of guy, he won the scoring title one year by 50 points and wasn't on the power play. Crazy. Um, you know, when we would go out, we'd do 10-mile runs before practice, and he'd go out and do them with us, 65-year-old man. And he would lead the pack pretty much most of the way. He demanded excellence, and he would not accept anything less. Practice was an all-out war. I remember, you know, some of the first practices he did he'd walk out in the middle of the floor put a bucket down the middle of the floor and says we're running until someone pukes wow and he would literally run you into the ground but 
we had a probably at mediocre at best team, you know, we beat the Canadian champions twice that year. Um, what we lacked in pure talent, we made for up, you know, with pure grit, determination, hard work. Uh, you know, we were the hardest working team in the league. It's like the stuff of uh, after school specials. Yeah, absolutely. That story, isn't it? Yeah, you know. <laughs> they make you, movies about that. Yeah, you know, he was the type of guy that if you weren't given 100%, he had no problem firing the ball right at your head, right? And, you know, that stuff just doesn't fly nowadays, right? Uh, some of the best fights I ever seen in lacrosse were at practice. The captain on the team, who was another just an amazing, you know, legend in, in the lacrosse community, he was the type of guy, you weren't given 110%, he would drop the gloves with you right in the middle of practice, and you would pick up your game, or you were going to be getting hurt. That's the game. Yeah. It doesn't allow for anything the other, less. The other team isn't going to give you any. Why should we in practice, right? And I think, you know, a lot of those lessons that I learned transcend extremely well into the fire service. I think sometimes our training is mediocre at best when, uh, you know, on the fire ground, it's not like that. So what were your uh, rookie years like? So you got on around 20. Yeah, so I was, uh, I think I started, yeah, just when I turned 20. Um, it was an interesting time, man. Yeah, so the fire department at that time was transferring kind of from a volunteer, all volunteer fire department to being more of a composite fire department. And we had one f- full time truck. So when I got on, we had one full time apparatus that worked 24 7, 365, that covered the entire city. Um, very interesting times. <laughs> So the day I started, uh, my captain had three years full-time. My driver had six months full-time. And the two guys in the back uh, were day one. Wow. You know, I didn't have that, you know, senior man that could take me under his wing and show me the job. You know, we, we trained a lot, and we got a lot of action, right? So in those early years, you know, if there was a house fire in the city, we were first up every single one. There was a car accident in the city. We were first up, every single one. And were were each of you uh, aware of your lack of experience in your in your youth? Oh yeah, and 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 tightened up and had a bit of that fear of what could be. So you prepped a little harder. Uh, definitely, I think everybody kind of knew that we know that we're it, man. You know, there's nowhere to hide. You're you're the first company in every single time. You, you know, there's nowhere to hide. There's no hey, my mask didn't work. There's no hey, I'll catch the hydrant this time. Being from a small staff fire department, if some if something doesn't get done, it's got a name attached to it. <laughs> if something doesn't get done, hydrant doesn't get caught, truck doesn't get parked right, ceiling doesn't get opened up, roof doesn't get opened up, that has a name attached to it. And I think that that keeps people in check a lot of the time too. Accountability. Accountability, right? You know, guys are counting on me and I'm the only guy here that can get it done. There's no spotlight. It's just the whole place is lit up. Yeah, exactly, right? So... The, the you know the first years were were interesting but they were absolutely amazing you know and and I'll look back at it as some of the best times that I'll ever probably have in my career yeah we didn't run a ton of calls we were maybe doing 1500 runs a year but first up for everything right you know there was no sharing i didn't have to share the auto x tools i didn't have to share the nozzle it was it was an interesting place to work definitely thinking on how important you feel that the senior firefighter is in today's fire service especially in larger departments, because I guess there is places to hide and a lot of departments have become really young. Are you surprised now looking back that despite that senior firefighter and maybe an experienced captain leadership that you guys 
had the mindset that you did or did you all come from similar backgrounds like what do you think it doesn't it's not luck right it's there's there was something there with say the four or five however many were on your crew you didn't have the leadership right uh, i think we had leadership even though the the captain at the time didn't have a lot of years experience i i feel he was a good leader was it inherent in him he just sort of had that yeah you know leadership's one of those things man you know i think that there's guys that try to they try to learn it. There's guys out there that try to read about it. There's guys that, you know, and there's other guys that just have it. Think about leadership. I think, again, some of the guys I've played lacrosse with, some of the best leaders that have ever probably walked the face of this earth, they didn't read a book on how to be that leader. They didn't come into practice uh, trying to use a new tip that they yeah, learned. Yeah, it was just inherent in them. It was just something that they've, it's been instilled in them growing up. You know, my first captain, I think he was a lot like that. You know, he, he knew that we were young. He knew that we were inexperienced, and he knew that the only way to get the best out of us was to get out there and train. And, I mean, we literally trained every single day. Raining, we were throwing ladders. Snowing, we were throwing ladders. Snowing, dragging hose. It didn't matter, right? So we were always out there working. And he knew he was in a position where he had had a bunch of kids, right? You know, he was babysitting, you know, and he knew that he had to make sure that we were ready to rock and roll, you know, at the drop of a hat. So... So did you sense from him whether he was faking it till he made it, uh, a sense of competence, a sense of confidence, a sense of we're going to be okay? From that came respect and admiration. Yeah, I mean, he definitely he definitely had a confidence about him. Uh, and there's a lot of guys I'm, that I worked with. You know, they were very confident, competent firefighters. You know, even when I think back to it now, being on, you know, almost you know, 17, 18 years now, you know, I look at some guys nowadays that I've worked with those 18 years, and they're amazing firefighters nowadays. Truly hardcore, gritty firemen. And uh, I look back at those days, you know, the first you know couple of years, and I would say that, you know, that crew is just as competent as some of the guys nowadays, you know. We didn't know as maybe as much, but they definitely had the confidence. The comp, You know, we were definitely uh, ready to rock and roll at the drop of a hat. So you mentioned how these uh, certain towns and cities, you know, my my city is experiencing this. Milton, 100%, is experiencing it, the, the quick growth. Yeah. And because of that, there may have been long periods of time where there weren't larger hiring numbers. Uh, and then you start to build stations and you need a lot of people every single year. So, uh, And then you have the, uh, the older generation retiring. So the attrition, yeah. uh, you end up having a very young department. The younger firefighters and experience outnumber greatly the senior firefighters yeah and i mean i would say that that's probably a, a problem that most departments in the gta are facing you know my job i mean probably if you looked at it as a whole they're probably less than eight years on the job would be most of the guys on the fire department there i remember i was talking to a guy who works you know in a fairly big city in the gta and he was saying that his senior guy and his crew had six years on the department i was just like you know man that's crazy like think about it and uh you know those are definitely some challenges that the fire service has to face right now is is the fact that you know the fire service you know in the gta is extremely young again because of the growth right there may be a problem even just with the title the name senior firefighter right so and, yeah. and just to, to build on what i was just talking about about departments becoming young that there's almost this rush to get to calling yourself a title calling yourself senior firefighter 
without really knowing what it means and requires. Yep. Where maybe these leaders, you know, that you're speaking of and that we see around us, they never even give it a second thought. The fact that they are a senior firefighter, they are just who they are. Does that resonate with you? Yeah, you know, I mean, for myself, the kind of the first, you know, example of a senior firefighter that I, and when I ever even heard the term, you know, when I was 20 years old, just got on the fire department, uh, I used to go down across the border and I used to ride a Buffalo Rescue One. I met some guys uh, that worked in Buffalo and used to go down there and ride a Rescue Company One. You know, they had at the time probably one of the biggest mentors in the job I've ever had, a guy by the name of Mike Lombardo the time he was the captain of rescue company and he ended up being the chief still in his 60s he lives in uh, delaware still a firefighter there probably one of the best firefighters that's uh, ever put a helmet on i remember him you know he was like oh you know the guy over there that's ronnie camholds he's the senior man of the company i said oh what does that mean he's like he's the guy that runs this place he's like i'm the captain i'm the guy that's in charge of this place he's the senior man he's been here for 30 years He's the guy that runs this place. He's like, the heartbeat, the pulse of this company comes from that guy. And that really kind of hit home for me. I was just like, wow. You know, and I kind of relayed that back to to lacrosse, right? You know, the guys that that were the senior guys on the team, right? The heartbeat of that team and the pride of that team came from those guys. That wasn't all of them. Just because they they were there last year, they were a 20-year-old cross player that was going over age. That doesn't mean that they had that same kind of mentality, that same kind of swagger about them. You know, it was the true guys that bled that team uh, that you got that from. And it's the same thing with being a senior man in a firehouse, I think. Just because um, you have the most years on the job doesn't mean you're the senior man. You know, the senior man is the guy that he lives, breathes, eats that firehouse. You know, that firehouse is his for lack of a better term, that rig is his. And he's the guy that goes around and makes sure everything's squared away. The tools are clean. Company's doing what it should be doing. They're drilling. You know, and just seeing that when I go to firehouses, you know, about how the senior man is truly the guy that runs the firehouse. The senior man is the guy that says, hey, we're going out and drilling today. Hey, are the tools clean? We'll make sure they're clean. The senior man is not the guy that has the most time on the job and doesn't have to mop anymore. That's a little bit of bullshit, right? The senior guy is the guy that is doing the right thing. Everything in that firehouse kind of runs, flows through him. You know, and I used to see that when I used to go to these firehouses, you know, how important that senior man in that company was and how respected they were. And I think that that's missing because the job is so young. You know, you got a guy on the job with four or five years on the job, and he's the most guy with the most seniority. Yeah, and, and nature abhors a void. So if there's nothing sure. there to, to hold up that place, then uh, it gets filled by any means. Yep. And I think what I've witnessed coming from a department that more was more heavy with experience to becoming a very young department yep. over the past, I'd say, 10 years, there's no one true experience and presence that sort of sets the tone and the expectations for them. Yeah. By no fault of their own in some ways and by some fault, you know, accountability in other ways, there's this sense that, well they automatically feel around this crew in their microcosm that I've been on five years and I'm the senior firefighter here in yeah. the station by years. It's, it can be dangerous. And I, I think the people underneath them buy into it as well, right? So Because that's their closest thing to what they believe when they came on the job is look to the senior firefighter. Yeah, you know, I've always said that when a rookie walked through the door at the firehouse, I think they look to the guys with seniority, the guys with experience, and they go, I want to be that guy. 
that senior firefighter is going to set the tone for that firefighter probably for the rest of his career. So I don't take it lightly, you know, like I'm the senior firefighter on my crew. I don't take that position very lightly at all. You know, I've had two rookies that came on underneath me uh, since I've been on, and uh, the expectation was set from day one about what I expected of them and, uh, you know, what they expected of me. I'm extremely proud to say I still work with both of those guys, and they're probably two of the most jam-up firemen I've ever worked with in my entire life whether that's visiting Canada or the U.S., both of them are absolutely dynamite firemen. I told them, every day you walk through that door, we're training. Every day we walk through that door, we check the rig. If the pre-connect is put on there and it's not right, we pull it off and we put it on there right. The rig, it gets washed every single day. I don't care whether it's 50 below out or whether it's beautiful and sunny. It gets washed every day. I expect this from you at a fire. You know, I can be <laughs> difficult at times if uh, it's not going the way that it needs to go. Personal when it when you have the luxury of being personable. Yeah, like I got no problem getting in a guy's face and telling him you fucked up at that call. Zero. And I hope that they would do the same for me. You know, because that's what brings out the best in people. You know, is holding them accountable for, for what they do. So, But do you equally hand out kudos? Absolutely. So there's a balance. Yeah. Any firefighter will tell you, and there's nothing better in the world than getting a pat on the back and saying, good job, brother. It's a lot of times it means the world to a guy, right? Best praise I think you can ever give someone is he's a good firefighter. You know, I mean, that was a, a big thing in New York City, right? If they said, you know, if you said, hey, do you know so-and-so? And they said, yeah, he's a good guy. That means you were probably a bag of shit on the fire ground, <laughs> right? If they said, hey, do you know so-and-so? And they said, yeah, he's a good fireman. That means that they had the absolute respect for you right? right they knew that you were going to be in position they knew you were doing the right thing you know that's kind of transcended to my job right I can still remember my my you know my latest rookie first time he ever came out of a house fire right gave him a big hug and i said hey brother i'm proud of you nice you know all those all that work you know the sweat acuity out back of the firehouse pulling lines on the hottest day of the year pulling lines on the coldest day of the year all that stuff paid off because we just had an awesome fire you were first do nozzle and you knocked it out of the park and then how quickly was he back out training and the next time it was time a to do that absolutely interesting my first rookie that i ever had i was just as hard on him just as quick to praise him when he did something right you know when he hit it out of the park i was right there to pat him on the back tell him i was proud of him uh, and now to see him kind of take that role and and pass that same kind of stuff on to the next guy I'm absolutely blessed where I work. I work with four other guys that are all dynamite firemen. To see all the guys kind of, you know, act that way, to value the same kind of stuff. Every single one of those guys will hold you accountable if you're in the wrong position, if you pull the wrong line, if you don't have the right tools. Do you think we're trying to teach this uh, fine line between confidence and fear? Hmm. Um. Because if, if you, I found there's some guys that can come on and are so hard on themselves, they expect so much of themselves that it, it can be detrimental. I've experienced that where I've had to sure. actually build them up and build some sense of personal strength and confidence, and then you get the most out of them. They already have the fear of failure. They already have the... Yep. So, uh, again, uh, when I played lacrosse, uh, my coach Paul Suggett, he always used to say, uh, the worst leadership advice you can ever give someone is to treat someone the way you want to be treated. And I went, what? 
I said, that doesn't make any sense to me, right? It was the golden rule, right? He's like, he's like, it's the worst thing. He goes, and it will kill an organization quicker than anything else. And I said, what do you mean by that? He said, listen, he goes, to get the best out of you, Brass, I got to get in your face. You need me to be hard on you to get the best out of you. He goes, see that kid sitting down at the end of the bench? He goes, if I'm hard on him, I will lose him for the rest of the game. He goes, if I yell at him, he, I, he will he will introvert and I will lose him for the rest of the game and I will never get the best out of him. He said, you need to learn how to treat people the way they want to be treated. I'm the type of person, I need someone to, to motivate me and I need that person to get in my face. There's no soft and feely with me, right? Uh, there's other people that are on the job that that's what they need to be the best firefighter they can possibly be. They need someone that'll take more time with them. People learn differently, right? You know, I've had guys on my job you know, my first rookie, amazingly talented, you know, person when he came into the fire department. He was a heavy diesel mechanic for 20 years before he became a firefighter. You know, there wasn't much I was going to teach him about being having mechanical aptitude or hard work or anything like that, right? He responded to things very differently than some of the other people I've, I've worked with. I had one guy, not a very hands-on guy, but he could read something, pick it up, and understand it. The guy that was the heavy diesel mechanic going out and doing an hour of forcible entry training, hands-on, he picks it up instantly, right? The other guy, he's the type of guy that he needs to sit down. He needs to understand every single thing about this first. He needs to read about it. He needs to watch a video. He needs to see a PowerPoint and have it explained to him in detail. And then he can go out and do it in hand, the hands-on portion. Because if you just skip that with that one guy and go right to the hands-on, he's lost. He's lost. So you need to be able to teach people and train people and treat people differently depending on how they uh, learn, you know, how they want to be treated. You can't just go out there and, you know, rule with an iron fist with everybody. Uh, some people need that, and other people, you will lose them forever. I was just listening to um, Joe Rogan, uh, his interview with uh, Tim Kennedy. Okay. And he was talking about an officer that uh, was brought into a company that was that was struggling. They thought they needed to be you know, hard on everybody to sort of get this job done. Yeah. And things weren't going well. They believed because they weren't doing a good job that they were going to, they were going to lose their job. They were going to get fired. So, you know, one night they just thought, well, I'm not going to worry about that anymore. I'm just going to be good to them and try and help them as best I can. And then everything just turned around. Yeah. It's more of this soft skill, right? Another quote this morning I heard, if, if you only have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. I think that's probably one of the greatest skills a leader can have is to be able to read people and know what they need to get the best out of them. That's a true leader. But it takes effort, right? 100%. You have to learn your people. You know, if you're trying to be a leader, you know, air quotes, and you're sitting in the office playing Sudoku all day um, and not learning your people, shame on you, right? If they're a true leader and they have the respect for the people, I guarantee you they spend a lot of time with them. I went to a department one time, you know, just there kind of visiting some friends. I was talking to the captain, and he didn't even know the guy's wives' names, didn't know their kids' names, didn't even know if they had kids, didn't know a thing about them. He kind of said, I'm not here to be their friend, I'm here to be their boss. And I was like, well, you know, there's a difference between a boss and a leader. To be a leader, I think you truly have to know your people. You have to know what makes them tick uh, to get the best out of them. So. Any other mentors that stand out? I think you mentioned uh, a couple from FDNY. Again, some of the biggest mentors I've ever had on my job, you know, uh, again, I kind of go back to Mike Lombardo. He ran a tremendous amount of fire duty in his career. 
he's just a fireman exemplified to me. He's uh, He's got it. Whatever it is, he has it. Just respected worldwide for his contributions to the fire service. Some other ones that kind of stick out in my mind, Captain Robert Morris, FDNY, Rescue Company 1, the rescue man through and through, right? Just a hard-nosed, gritty fireman. He uh, turned 65 and had to retire. The job forced him out. He would never leave, ever, if they uh, if they didn't push him out the door. I remember the first time I ever met Captain Morris. First year I was a firefighter and heard about FDIC. FDIC in Indianapolis, biggest firefighting show in the world. I was like, man, that sounds right up my alley. I got to go. So I legitimately had a mason jar that sat next uh, to my bed. And every day I'd come in and I'd put my change in there. I'd throw a couple bucks here and there in it. And legitimately for a year I saved up enough money to go to FDIC on my own dime. And uh, drove down there in my piece of crap car that hardly made it. And uh, I signed up to take a forcible entry class with Captain Morris. No idea who he was. The uh, class was put on in this old vacant grocery store in Indianapolis. So we get there, walk into this old vacant grocery store, and I remember the props that they had back in the you know back then. They didn't have all these you know fancy props that a lot of guys use nowadays and and stuff like that. It was real doors, real locks, bolted the door shut, the whole nine yards, and these props were welded into the frame, into the structure of this gro- uh, grocery store in the back storage room. They would ch- have to change every rotation. They would change the door and put a new door in every single time, you know, a student would force the door. And I just remember seeing him stand there. Now, if anyone's ever seen or met Captain Morris, he's not very big. He's, you know, maybe five foot six, five foot seven, you know, 165 pounds. But that man looked like he was seven feet tall to me, kind of like walking into the uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs locker room and, you know, seeing your favorite hockey player there. I mean, he was just larger than life and just an absolute gentleman and knew the job inside and out. And he had all his guys with him. You could see he demanded perfection from those guys, and they ate it up. You know, every single one of those guys, they were uh, just dialed in. You know, I left that that class and I just that's kind of where my addiction to building props and trying to make training the best that it could possibly be because that was kind of my first ever exposure to how training should be at that level I still remember that class to this day and I, I still have a picture that's framed in my basement of Captain Morris walking out of the back of that grocery store and I remember I took it got it framed and he's just one of those guys that he's just a legend on the job you go in any firehouse in New York City, 13,000 firemen, right? You can say, hey, do you know this guy? 90% of the guys go, I have no idea who that guy is. All right, 13,000 of us. You can walk in any firehouse in New York City and say, hey, you know who Captain Morris is? And every single guy there will say, yep, 40 years on the fire department plus, still doing it to this day. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, I love finding these new names to add to the uh, website for the yeah. podcast, so I'll be putting him on there for sure. You mentioned uh, Mike Campo. Is that my pronunciation? Mike Champo. Champo. Yeah. Yeah. Champ. New York City fireman. Like, if you said, hey, picture me a New York City fireman, he's the guy that you would picture in your head. 34 years. He grew up 
uh, in the volunteers, third generation, I think third or fourth generation volunteer firefighter from Wyckoff, New Jersey. His father uh, was in charge of stores uh, for the New York City Fire Department. So, you know, if you need a new Halligan, you know, Mike's dad was the guy that would get that for you. Ever since Mike was a little kid, he used to ride down a rescue too during the war years, you know, back when it was the, you know, the hit squad, right? You know, the raid down. He, again, absolute legends on the fire department. He used to ride down there. John Vigiano, that was back when Rescue 2 was the biggest, baddest boys on the block. And he used to ride down there and got on the fire department and got hired by Washington, D.C. Fire Department. I think he had like a year on the engine, and then he went to uh, Rescue Squad 3. Worked on Rescue Squad 3 for four years until he got hired in uh, in the New York City Fire Department. I met Champ at FDIC. I taught two years for him doing his uh, truck essentials class. I taught the forcible entry portion of that. Blessed I get to teach once a year with him uh, in Bowling Green, Ohio, at the State Fire Academy. And we teach uh, two days of uh, street smart engine stuff, two days of street smart truck. Not only is he one of the best firefighters I've ever met, especially when it comes to truck company operations. He is also just genuinely one of the nicest human beings that you will ever meet. Just an absolute great person. Uh, Truly cares about everybody he meets. Um, When I see him teach, he leaves a part of him with every student he ever contacts with. You know, that's pretty rare. He doesn't care whether you work, you know, in a big city or whether you work in a small rural department that runs 20 calls a year. He gives every one of his students absolutely 110 percent of what he has like you said reading people maybe sen- sensing what do they need yeah like a, I, like a sixth sense yeah he, like he literally he'll just go hey you know you come over here you know i saw that you were struggling here and you know try, try this try this try this and you know he just genuinely takes the time like i said he's one of the nicest people that i've ever met too like he genuinely cares about everybody that he, he kind of comes in contact with you can bring both high expectation high performance and be kind. The biggest thing is, you know, you got to know what those people require, you know. I don't need kind. I'm not that kind of guy. I need hard, you know, like I need someone to yell at me. Those other guys, you yell at them, they, they, they close up, right? And Champ, he's a lieutenant at 45 Truck uh, in New York City and Washington Heights. You know, he's a true fireman. He's a true boss. He understands his people. I was just teaching uh, not too long ago. Providence, Rhode Island, and one of the guys I was teaching with is a New York City uh, a firefighter at 28 Truck at the Harlem Hilton, and he was saying, he said, you know what, he goes, Brass, he goes, 3 o'clock in the morning, we're out on a BS run, alarm condition inside of a high-rise building. He goes, we don't run in with 45 Truck very often, but he goes, we were there. He goes, 45 Truck was the uh, the third due company, so they weren't, they weren't doing nothing. He goes, 3 o'clock in the morning, I come out of the building, and I look down the street, and Mike has the aerial set up to one of the buildings. I said to one of my guys, I said, see that? That is a boss. That is a true officer. He goes, it's 3 o'clock in the morning. How many of these guys want to get back to the rack? He's training his driver how to spot that rig properly for this specific building. He's like, that is, you know, what you guys need to be doing on a regular basis. He holds those guys to those high high expectations, and then he gets high performances from them when the, when the time comes. A lot of these people that we talk about, these legends that stand out, are south of the border. Yep. You know, do you see people like that north of Forty Nine, or that coming up that years down the road you know they will be that? We'll talk about them this way. Absolutely, I work with four of them. 
I'm absolutely blessed. I get to go to work every day, and I work with four absolutely stand-up dynamite firemen. If I was ever in trouble, I know every one of them would give everything they had to get me out of there. Some other guys that, I, you know, I've been absolutely, again, blessed in my career to know and to work with. A guy like Jeff Clayton, just a humble dude, but he's a dynamic dynamite fireman. Totally agree. Um, you know, another guy, Johnny Cadiz, right? Great guy, you know, absolutely dedicated to the job. Absolutely loves every aspect of it and puts his heart and soul in everything that he ever does and teaches. You know, Mike Tazarski, Mississauga, uh, works a squad one. Dynamic brother. You know, not only is he a great fireman, he's also a great medic. Uh, you know, works on Orange Ambulance. You want to talk about a smart dude, right? There's a dude that is, you know, absolutely dialed in, right? There's a ton of guys up here that are amazing firemen. But I think people need to know about them so that they can take something from them. Absolutely. You know, um, go down and I, you know, get an opportunity to teach with a lot of these guys, that, that, you know, south of the border that are big names in the fire service. You know, and I come back up here and we have guys that are just as capable, just as competent. People don't know who they are, but right, they should. People should, right? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Well, the, the list is going to get longer for the the lineup on here. <laughs> yeah. Hey, there you go. I keep leaning on Johnny, and uh, he's coming. Uh, once he gets things settled down, he's going to jump in the seat. So I'm excited to actually have a chat with him. Good. Yeah. He's 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 a gem. Yeah. Yeah. I follow him anywhere. Absolutely. So uh, are we setting ourselves up properly for more of these people to start tomorrow? and follow in the footsteps of the people we just mentioned. Is there an issue with uh, current hiring practices? It's definitely not a popular topic that, you know, a lot of people tend to get their back up about it. Um, but I definitely think that we're not hiring the right people a lot of the time. You know, we tend to hire white collar kids for a blue collar job. And I've had a lot of talks with different fire chiefs and stuff like that about this kind of topic. Uh, Cause it's one that, uh, you know, I am actually passionate about. You know, having taught recruit classes and stuff like that before, always kind of interested. So I had a fire chief tell me one time that they were, you know, I said, well, what are you looking for when you're hiring somebody? And they said, we want to hire tomorrow's leaders. And I said, okay, that makes sense. I said, what about tomorrow's firefighters? If you hire 25 guys in a recruit class and you are touting all of those people to be a leader of that department, so you're hiring them based on, you know, maybe some higher education and stuff like that. Well, are you surprised that at 22 years old, they don't want to mop a floor? Are you surprised that when they don't get to that point in 10 years of their career and they're still mopping floors, that they don't become disgruntled employees? I, I think that we need a good mix when we're hiring recruit classes. We need to hire guys that are, you know, maybe good leaders down the road, but we also need to hire guys that want to be a firefighter for the rest of their career don't mind hard work don't mind mopping the floor don't mind you know pulling hose at three o'clock in the morning you need a good mix of everybody to make a you know a solid team again i kind of think back to lacrosse right if you had 25 goal scorers on your team and you didn't have anybody that could play defense you're not going to win any games you know and someone told me this one time and I, and I think it's true is that chiefs tend to gravitate towards people that are like them and i said oh that makes sense if a chief is a young chief, maybe he or she's been uh, been a chief in their 40s, you know, and they got on in their mid-20s, 
you know they didn't really spend too much time crawling down hallways and mopping floors and all that kind of stuff they have high ambition yeah and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that Mm -hmm. right um but then they try to hire the same type of people that they are and i think that if we get too many people like that in one organization then we don't have it we have people that complain about mopping the floors if guys don't seek their full potential they become bitter you know unproductive employees sometimes so i think uh yeah there's nothing wrong with hiring you know that guy that's got his uh master's degree and there's nothing wrong with hiring some farm kid that doesn't have anything and changing these practices uh that would take leadership right it takes sure someone in those positions to stand up and say this is where we're going this is what we need to do yeah you know i mean some of the uh, i look at some of the stuff on like you know guys getting hired nowadays and some of the test stuff that they have to write and i'm just like you know what some of the best firemen i've ever met in my life can't spell fire but they can put a lot of it out it's hard to test for work ethic and where everything needs to be i think documented when you hire someone on if anything ever happened they look back here are their marks right it's all very much about ticking the boxes uh so time spent writing tests and not enough time drilling actual job related tasks I remember one time I had a, a chief who told me he didn't care if his guys knew how to force a door. He cared if he had a piece of paper that said that they knew how to force a door. And I was shocked. I had no idea what to say. I literally just stood there and stared at him. And I was like, I can't believe I just heard that. But we're kind of going down that road of where the ability is outweighed by the CYA, the cover your ass, to make sure that you have the piece of paper and everybody's certified and when i go to fire departments and i'm like hey how many rope technicians do you have on your department and they're like ah 1500 we're a 1500 member department everybody's a rope tech and i'm just like well that probably means that nobody is you know you may have a piece of paper in a filing cabinet somewhere that says that uh, joe smith is a is a rope technician but he can't tie a bowline he can't tie a figure in on a bite he's not a rope tech I see, you know, departments spending astronomical amounts of money trying to get their entire department up to one level. And I'm like, you'd be better spent to try to get 20 guys up to that level. It comes down to how you structure your department. So there's something to be said, I think, the more I look at this, that specialization is crucial. And we seem to be getting more and more spread thin in the sense of fairness, in the sense of equality that every single person has to be able to work at every single station on every single truck and do every single position. I think with the amount of information, I think we're doing a disservice to us in the community that we're not able to focus strong enough on doing a couple things as experts. A hundred percent, right? Not everybody gets to be the quarterback, you know, and it's just as simple as that. I mean, I go down in the States and they have a rescue company, two rescue companies in a city, something like that. You know, and when I go to cities and, and, and I visit people and, you know, my friends, a lot of them work on busy rescue companies. And I've always kind of been drawn to those companies because they tend to draw guys that are the most into the job tend to go there because you need to be into the job. It can't just be, hey, 42 hours a week, uh, you know, I'm here, whatever. You know, they have to be kind of into the job and kind of submersed in the job to kind of really, truly be good at 20 different rescue disciplines plus fighting fires plus doing all the other kind of stuff right so they tend to be quote unquote the buffiest kind of firefighters that work in those places 
that is a very rare thing up here in Canada is to have a dedicated rescue company. I think you bring up a really interesting point. I think this ties into what you were saying before about leaders needing to know who they have on the bench. Yep. Because what you just said there was that if you create a specialty truck, you're going to draw in the people that want to be on a specialty truck. Yep. As opposed to, we need a body at this station. I'm moving you here. They don't want to do that job. And they're never going to be into it the way you want them to be into it. Yep. When I talk this about this kind of stuff to, to people that are you know, in leadership roles in fire departments, it scares them because then they're like, well, then I'll have 20 guys on one company and they're all into the job. And now I don't have those guys out in general population, you know, spreading them around, right? And I'm just like, yeah, but does it do you any good taking a guy that's super into the job and putting him with four turds at a fire station that don't care about the job? So it's not one weak link, it's one strong link and three weak ones. Again, when I go to departments, a lot of the times that rescue company is the ace up the sleeve for the incident commander. Good friend of mine, he's a, he's a boss in Cincinnati, works on a heavy rescue company there, and they get a fire in, a, in an area that's not really busy for fire duty. They got a new incident commander, he's there. And good incident commander's not work, used to work, he's used to working in the, the busy areas, he's not used to working in the slow areas. Heavy rescue pulls up, they get out of the truck, they go run it up, check in with command, command goes, uh, he goes, he walks around the front of the rig and the commander's sitting on the front of the first two engine. And he's sitting there and he's got his hands in his face, just shaking his head back and forth like, what is going on here? My buddy Grant walks up and says, hey, chief, what do you need? He goes, uh, looks up, he goes, Grant. He goes, yes, chief. He goes, fix this. Grant goes, I got you, chief. He's like, you two guys in on this first in-hand line, you two guys, second floor, you two guys go to the roof, right? Six guys on the company, right? So he sends two guys in and they follow the hand line in and the hand line's not moving. So they get in behind the hand line and let's go, boys, push this line in. We need to make this. And that's all those guys needed was that little bit of, hey, you know, we got this. We're fine. Okay. We just need to make that last 20 feet of this hallway and we got this. Right. They just needed that voice in behind them, cheering them on. Right. And being a good rescue firefighter, I think, is uh, you have to know when to be a cheerleader and you have to know when to be get out of the way. If you're a rescue company, you're pulling up and there's a company there and they're struggling to pop a door. If you push them out of the way, they're never going to learn how to pop that door. It's a door pop. It's not, we're not talking about crazy extrication, persons in there. They're, you know, we're talking about a door pop, right? Your best thing to do as a rescue firefighter is to get in behind that person and be that mentor. Be that guy that says, okay, kid, grab the tools. No, you're doing this. All right. I want you to put them here and I want you to see how that, that spread like that. But that's what you want to see every time, right? Now you're going to get in there and you're going to go ahead and you're going to cut that. You need to know as a good rescue firefighter when to do that and when it's, all right, kid, this is beyond you, all right? You need to get out of the way. It's a teaching moment or it's a just a moment that needs to be taken care of. Absolutely. And, and I think that fire service up here does itself a disservice by not having that those companies out there. If you've got a guy, a young guy who's into the job, super into the job, doesn't want to be a boss though, what does he have to to work towards? What's the incentive? What's the incentive to, for him to be super into the job? You know, if he had a company that he could go work on where there was 20 other guys that were just like him, right? He would strive. He would work. He would do whatever it took to get there. You know, and there's guys that are phenomenal firemen that want no part of working in a company like that. And I get that too. And that's, and that's absolutely fine. I think that, you know, when we talk about rescue companies in, in Canada, everybody thinks about technical rescue and that's not what a rescue company is about 
the greatest asset that you have at a rescue company is you have five guys or four guys or however many guys you staff that with that want to go to fires and want to get in there and do the nitty gritty work. They're the tip of the spear a lot of the time, right? I know a lot of guys will hate me for saying that. You know, a lot of times it's true, right? So just just the attitude of a group too. Like thinking back again yeah. to that Tim Kennedy interview, he was talking about how his like you know he's in special ops and yeah. he talks about the attitude uh, of the guys he runs with. They do work. It's called find the quitter. Yep. <laughs> so whoever's with them, they yep. just go until they find who's the quitter. Yep. I love it. Pushing everybody along. Fire service needs more of that. You know, I think it brings the best out of people. So another interesting uh, point you brought up in uh, what you provided me was that it's not just subjective stuff like, you know, the love for the job or these, these soft skills that creates the heart in people. It's also the objective stuff, even the design and the physical environments of the fire station, how that impacts our mindset. And I hadn't, you know, I've always sort of pined for the, having the experience of, an, of what I would picture as a firehouse, uh, but we don't have those. Uh, and I hadn't thought about how that impacts people's perception of themselves and their colleagues and their workplace. Talk to me about that. Uh, you know, everyone would agree that, you know, the PTSD stuff that's going on in, in the fire service is epidemic, right? I think a lot of it is because we're taking the firehouse, we're turning them into fire stations and not firehouses. You know, you spend 42 hours of your week there, some guys more, some guys a lot more. You spend a lot of your life at this place. A lot of them look like dentist office nowadays. I walk through them and I and there's no pictures on the walls. It's crazy to me. Or if they are, they're pictures that have a safety message attached to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's like, uh, you know, there's a picture of a firefighter that doesn't work at your fire department and says, you know, like, make sure you wear your mask today. An old firehouse in, in Ontario is probably 20 years old. An old firehouse in some of the, you know, places in, in the States, you know, are almost 150 years old. It's pretty wild. I think that, you know, one of the biggest things I see is the lifeblood of a good fire station, of a good firehouse, is the kitchen table. The kitchen table is where everything is. It's a magical place, right? And if you have a good kitchen table, it's the best place in the world, man. And I think you mean that subjectively yeah. and also objectively. Like Absolutely. Having a good kitchen table. Yeah. In my firehouse, we built our kitchen table. The guys on my crew, we welded it all together. We made the wood tops, like two inch thick, heavy old live edge barn board, hand planed. The entire thing was all glued and biscuited all together by us. It's a labor of love. And when our guys sit around that, every single thing in the world gets sorted out there. It, it truly is the lifeblood and the, and the pulse of the firehouse, right? You know, you don't come into the, you know, the side door at the firehouse until you walk through the kitchen. You walk through the kitchen and, you know, prepare to get your balls broken, prepare to get made fun of. Everything should happen there. I read a thing one time and it said one of the biggest successes for families, and I'm not talking about the fire service at all, one of the biggest successes for a family is to eat dinner together. And that kind of struck a chord with me because how many fire departments guys don't eat dinner together? It's crazy to me. Good firehouse down in this, and it happens quite a bit in the States, you know, where I kind of got my first exposure to it was the guys aren't in the other areas of the firehouse. Everybody sits around the, the firehouse kitchen table and they bitch and they complain and they talk shop, they talk shit, tell lies, laugh. Hey, even sometimes cry together. I think that the fire service is missing that. It really struck a core with me and I went to a department to teach a class one time and it was a big, 
big station. You know, they run three trucks out of that firehouse. And uh, I walk in, they got this massive kitchen table. It was right at shift rate. So I'm like, there's going to be like 30 guys in and out of here. I'm like, this is going to be great. Right? Everyone's going to be talking shit. It's going to be awesome. I sit down. I get myself a cup of coffee. I'm sitting there. There's guys walking in and out of the kitchen, getting their stuff out of the fridge, this, that, and the other. And I was kind of shocked. And I said to the guy, I said, I said, hey, bro, I was like, where is everybody? He's like, what do you mean? I said, doesn't everybody kind of that shift trade get in here and, you know, talk shop and, you know, ask what happened the night before? And he kind of looked at me and said, no. I was like, what? He goes, uh, or every firefighter has their own bedroom. He says, the guys will come in, they'll put their lunch in the in the fridge and he goes and they'll go to the room he goes and you won't see him all day unless there's a call and i said that to me is probably one of the biggest problems with the culture that we have up here because we go out and we see horrible horrible stuff we see calls that uh you know again no human being should ever have to see some of the stuff that we see on a daily basis a lot of times when you get back at that kitchen table and you know one minute you're talking about who knows whatever is going on in the world today. And you know, the next minute you're talking about a call and the next minute, you know, you got a guy that says, you know what, man, that call last week really fucked me up. Right. And then he talks about, it. he gets it off his chest. It gives him a place that he feels safe, that he can sit there and, and talk about that kind of stuff. Instead, if he comes back to his firehouse and he goes back to his bedroom and he sits in there and he watches TV or he plays his Xbox or whatever he does, and he doesn't talk to anybody about that, you know, that shit will eat you alive. Yeah, isolation. Yeah, you know, I don't understand it. I, you know, I love going to work every day, you know, eight, you know, almost 18 years on the job now. I still get up every morning and I'm like, fuck yeah, I get to go to the firehouse today. The kitchen table, man, it, you know, it's the, the part of the job I probably love the most, you know, just sitting around there laughing until your face hurts, you know talking shit to each other you know it's 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 an amazing amazing place and it should be a place where you can say any it's kind of like vegas right whatever happens at the kitchen table stays at the kitchen table <laughs> you know you should be able to the good know, bad and the, the ugly good, the bad and the ugly right? right you know talking about the leafs playing tonight and then two minutes later the guy's telling you about life's not very good at home right now it gives them that safe place to kind of get that stuff off their chest well, if you don't do that on a regular basis, if you're not sitting around there, you know, kind of talking and, 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 and creating that environment where guys can talk about whatever the fuck they want, yeah. it's not going to happen, right? If you come back from a particularly nasty call and you sit around the kitchen table all of a sudden and you kind of make everybody sit around there, they're not going to say anything. Good to hear colleagues say, yeah, me too, or watch them nod or shake their head or... Yeah. Take a big sigh, like you can realize they're experiencing some of what you're experiencing too. Yeah, you know, like, I mean, I've had calls that, you know, have kind of rocked me, right? And I get back to the kitchen table and I say, hey, guys, you know what? I'm going to be the first one to say that call was fucked up, right? And you get a couple other guys go, yeah, you know what? It's, it's really kind of eating me too. And it gives people a place to talk about that stuff instead of burying that stuff down deep. And I think a lot of the problem that we have you know, in the fire service with depression and, and that is because these guys, they don't have anyone to talk to about it. I remember, uh, I had a particularly kind of call that kind of rocked me, kind of hit home to, for me personally. I didn't really say anything to my guys about it. Yeah. I just found that it was, I couldn't shake it. I couldn't stop thinking about it. And then finally I sat down with my guys and I just said, listen, man, like 
did that call that happened, you know, it messed me up. And how many weeks was that? How many weeks did you sit on it? Uh, it probably wasn't weeks. It was probably more like months. You know, like I said, 17 years on this job. I haven't had many that rock me. It wasn't something that would stick out in anybody else's mind, you know. Did you hold on to it because you were worried about telling them, or did you just not know how to verbalize it? Like, what was the reason you sat on it? You know, I think it was because I didn't really recognize that it was bothering me so much. And I think that was kind of the major thing. Because it wasn't, like, it wasn't, you know, a gruesome call. I've seen a lot of stuff in my years, and, you know, never really any of that stuff has bothered me. I don't know why this is. But, yeah, you know, I, I, I said something at the kitchen table to the boys, and it was like a weight had lifted off of my chest. It was funny, one of the one of the other guys came up to me afterwards and said, listen, bro, he's like, I really appreciate you doing that. And I said, oh, I said, why is that? He goes, because if you can talk about it, you know, with the reputation you have on this job, then anybody in this job should feel safe about saying anything at this table. When you recognized it, were you quick to share it? No. Uh, I think when I recognized that it was bothering me, um, I reached out to a good friend of mine who's uh, a fireman in Columbus, Ohio, and he, at the time, had a captain of his, uh, literally, in the basement of a basement fire, had a massive heart attack. Wow. Went VSA in the basement of his fire. And they had to pull him out. They pulled him out, and they got him on the front lawn and uh, did CPR on him. And he had the same thing. He's like, he never really recognized that it was bothering him so much. So I called him up, and I was talking to him, and he's just like, dude, he's like, talk about it with your family. And I said... I was like, oh, you know, I don't, I don't know. My wife really wants to hear about this. And he's just like, he goes, no, your other family. Your other family, yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I sat down and I talked about it with the guys and like literally instantaneously felt like a weight had been lifted off my chest. You know, it was an amazing moment, right? And, it, and it, those are the types of things that draw us together, you know, as your fire family. Yeah, it was a huge weight off my chest. And, you know, I haven't had any problems uh, with it since. I just needed to be able to talk about it with somebody, right? And and to get it out and just say, hey, you know what? That was fucked up. And it bothered me. Yeah, I mean, we, we work in probably one of the most macho jobs on the planet. And guys are a lot of times afraid to say that, especially if they don't feel that connection with their guys. Well, you got to build that connection. And, you, and you, you really feel strongly. And I agree that this physical entity, this place, creates the space for it. Yeah, you know, I just think that if you're a chief or you're somebody that is designing a firehouse, the entire thing needs to flow around that place where the guys can sit and talk. And not I'm not talking about a TV room, right? One of my things I say was if you want to change the culture in the firehouse, walk in the kitchen and drive a pike of the halligan through the TV screen, right? right yes. <laughs> you know, because nothing good ever came from sitting in the chair and watching TV. You know, at the fire. It's house. not an interactive thing. No. You know, and my guys on my crew, we don't watch we don't watch TV. The TV's usually on in the background, yeah. you know. <laughs> Sports center running in Sports a loop. Sports center running in a loop, yeah. right? <laughs> um, oh, your firehouse is like my firehouse. Yeah, but you know what? Uh the bigger part of it is just the guys that sit there. Like, you know, we don't sit in the you know, in the comfy chairs, we sit in the chairs at the kitchen table. We talk about everything, man. We share everything. Even some stuff maybe we shouldn't. Um <laughs> I've you yeah. know I've, I've I've witnessed transition from more of a smaller town original firehouse feel to more yep. of a corporate feel, uh, and the, and what stands out to me is one of our stations uh, they built their kitchen table, thick piece of glass, yeah, uh, it's hydrants and hose keys and a Love ladder, it. 
right? That love supports it. the glass. Yeah. And not too long after, all I mean, the, the love and care and the effort yeah. that goes into building that thing, you know, policies changed. And uh, all of a sudden, there's people going around uh, standardizing and sanitizing and assetting, assetting yep. doors. Yep. Like a- anything that can put a tag on it, it's you're getting tagged. And they wanted to take this table out because this was corporate policy. And luckily, right, and this is where you get standing around something symbolically. And then they had support from their chiefs to say, yeah. you're not touching the table. Thank God. Right? And that, that could have decimated. Yeah that crew forever and now every time you walk into that station you see it it's it's you're happy yeah it's a it's a piece of art too proud to sit around that thing man. yeah you know yeah. and that that's a thing right a hundred years from now that firehouse is still there that table is going to be it still will there. be and uh, you know that's the thing i love about it i walk into a fire old firehouse and i sit down and i at the kitchen table and i don't go well that's a nice kitchen table sometimes they're shit right <laughs> they're falling apart stained stained there's elbow marks in them and all that kind of stuff and i look at that and go wow you know that's been a hundred years here mm. that's a hundred years of stories that's a hundred years of mm. great moments in fires you know where they make a save and they sit around the kitchen table and they go oh my god that was amazing you know blah 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 and it, a, a place where there's been a lot of pain too right mm-hmm. so another thing that's kind of symbolic too is personalized station logos yeah i think a lot of people can very often look at these things as oh my God, I can't believe, like roll their eyes. I can't believe you guys are so into the job that you're, you know, you're getting into what patch you wear. You want to wear this kind of shirt or you've got a name for your hall, right? And that, yep. but there's something to that, right? We're talking about pride and ownership. From from pride and ownership comes caretaking, right? Absolutely, right? Of I each mean, other and for the physical station. Again, if you feel that you, if that's your firehouse, you're going to take care of it a lot more, right? There should be a, a you know, an insane amount of pride that comes with, you know, doing the right thing. And I had a captain say to me one time, because you know why our guys go out and train every day? This is the other company across town. I said, why is that? He goes, because we know you guys are coming. I said, what does that mean? He goes, I know that if our guys have one misstep, you're going to run right past us. So we train, we make sure we're dialed in, we make sure we do the right thing. First, it started as, well, they're coming. So you better be ready because if you miss a step, if you're not quick getting that line off the truck, if you're whatever, he goes, they are going to run right past you. You know, they're not going to babysit you guys. So you guys better have your shit squared away. That was a great deal of pride, right, for our guys, you know. You know, the sweat, you know, the blood, the sweat, and the tears that the guys put in to, uh, to get there. There's pride in that. Everything down from making sure our tools are clean, making sure the hose is packed properly, making sure the line is ready to go. When guys show up and they say, oh, man, that line stretched perfect. Who did that? 31 did that. That's who did that. There's pride in that, right? And and when guys have that type of pride, um, they put themselves into that company. And, and you get better pr- uh, production out of those guys. The Esprit de Corps builds and it makes other companies around you better because of it. With you getting around and teaching so much and seeing departments on both sides of the border feel like that really gives you a different vantage point for a general feel of what the energy and the, the place of the fire service is now today. Talk to me about where you think we're at. Are we winning? Are we losing? Are there traditions and things we need to, you know, we mentioned the kitchen table and the way the station looks, but I, I basically, I want to know, are we winning? Are we losing? Where are we at right now as a whole? Um, I think we're winning. I think that, uh, 
we're definitely doing better. Have you um, gone through a lull and there's been a shift back? I, I think so, and I think it's because of that massive growth, right? You know, guys come in and, you know, they're working at a, you know, I, I talked to a guy uh, works in a, you know, fairly large, you know, metropolitan fire department in the GTA, and he said to me that, he goes, Brass, he goes, you know, I'm all in on the, the company pride and all that. He goes, but this is the problem. He goes, because we were growing so fast, I worked in a different station every two years for the first 15 years I was on the fire department. He's like, it's hard to build a good rapport, uh, you know, a good skill set. Uh, skill set. It's it's hard to build those tradi- firehouse traditions when you're changing every two years. Know your area. Know your area. Absolutely, right? Mm. Yeah, you know, now that some of those places are, you know, building up bigger, I think that you're starting to get guys, you know, if they spend 15 years at a fire or one firehouse, they want that place to feel like home. You know, one of the things, too, that I just, I think that we're kind of crippling ourselves here is social media policies and things like that. And, you know, you're not allowed to take pictures while you're at the firehouse. Again, it's a horrible idea. I think that there's a lot of guys out there that, that do things that they probably shouldn't and take pictures of stuff that they probably shouldn't and post it. And, you know, obviously that is a problem, but pictures of guys after a good fire, you know, standing beside the rig proud, you know, so taboo to do it nowadays. And, you know, just a kind of an example of that, Mike Champo, who I, I mentioned earlier, New York city firefighter, he was telling me one day, he's like, you know what? He goes, I was cleaning up my locker the other day. He goes, and, uh, you know, spring cleaning pulling some stuff out and throwing some stuff in the garbage and finding that old job shirt that was down in the bottom of my locker that I'd been thought was, you know, missing. <laughs> long and, gone. And, you yeah. know, long gone. Yeah. And he said, I came across a picture. He goes, and it was a bunch of us, you know, standing arm in arm after a good fire up in the Bronx when he worked at uh, tower ladder 44. And he said, and I literally looked at the picture and he goes, I was, almost taken aback and I goes I sat down on the edge of the uh the table or on the edge of the bench he goes and he goes like to be honest I got kind of emotional choked up and I said why is that he goes because I was the only guy left alive in that picture wow yeah you know I mean even just telling it I kind of get emotional about it but it's one of those things that some of the pictures I have of my guys you know I will cherish those forever you know everyone always tells you you know you know, house was ever on fire, what would you grab? You know, I'd make sure my kids and my dog were out first, and then I'd grab, you know, some of those pictures that I have with some of those guys, some of those fires, some of those great moments uh, that I had in my career. And those are things that are going to, you know, I'll cherish for the rest of my life, you know, because, you know, someday some of those guys won't be here anymore. I, I just love when I walk into a firehouse and I see pictures of old guys smiling, arm in arm with each other, standing there after a good job. You know, nowadays they're like, oh, you can't do that. You can't take a picture afterwards. And I think it's a crock. We're missing out. Absolutely, right? Someday the trip is going to end. I'll have to hang up my helmet for the last time and walk out that door. It would be cool if I came back 20 years later or maybe my kid got on the job and walked over and looked up and saw a picture of his dad or some guy that used to work here that made this place maybe a little bit better than he found it. Or you and your um, crew. or Yeah, you know. Um that's how we remember the 30 years of sacrifice that guys make. We tell stories and, you know, we have, we always have our pictures and stuff like that. So I think that, uh, we need to do more of it, not less. And I think that, uh, you know, chiefs that are coming out with policies and that type of stuff on that kind of thing are truly missing out. 
you know, I've always heard, well, you know, it looks bad if you're standing in front of a house fire and you're taking a picture with your guys. You know, we have to understand that people's worst days are our best days sometimes. There's nothing wrong, I don't think, with let's take a quick picture here and we made today better for these people. Even though it was the worst day of their life, we made it better for them. You should be proud of that. To remember the, the guys that you stood shoulder to shoulder with, you know, in that fight, I think it's uh, it's vital. You know, I think it's, you know, it's huge because like I said, you know, we take for granted the good times until the bad times hit. And, you know, someday, God forbid, some of those pictures might be the only thing I have to remember some of those guys by, or maybe they have to remember me by. So our crew just experienced that and it's our department as a whole, but our crew specifically too, right? Yeah. that's the type of stuff like champ said to me he goes you know something that was tucked into my locker that had no meaning at the time now all of a sudden was one of the most prized possessions i ever have we need to do more of that i take pictures of my kids so i can remember them when they were four i take pictures of guys on my crew because i consider them family you know i want to remember that stuff now that you're saying that i was on a shift change yesterday part of the training that we did through the day which was quite a bit actually (laughs) and we had a busy busy shift there was a couple people that were under four years you know three of them and doing some pumping yeah part of it was you know cycling through run the 45 and now it's at the 65 now run the deck gun and and uh we had them up handling the deck gun like a nozzle move it around up down side like as you would move a nozzle yeah just had that thought i'm gonna take a picture each of them either pumping or handling the nozzle and tweak it a little bit and then send it to them and yeah they were just really appreciative of it right and it seemed like a small thing but it's probably a big thing to them and just capturing moments, right? And I wish we had more opportunities to capture moments. Yeah, you know, I mean, I go to anybody's house, anybody ever, and I guarantee you one thing, if I walk in that house, there might not be furniture in there. I guarantee you they got a picture of their family on the wall. Why is a firehouse any different? Right. You know, we should walk in there and there should be pictures of those guys on the wall doing the thing that they love doing, right? It seems like something so small to people that, air quote, don't get it but it's means the world to the guys that uh, that work in that place day in and day out i find if you don't get the reason you don't get the experience absolutely <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> you know i would say if i have to explain to you why i probably will never get it right? right so you mentioned um part of pride being uh competence and confidence so talk to me about the need for training the need for practice the need for reps with your experience teaching do we need to fix that in the fire service as a whole? I, <laughs> I kind of laugh sometimes, you know, like I hear people say, well, we're a busy firehouse, so we don't need to train. You know, we do this shit for real every day. I laugh, you know, because a lot of times people aren't as busy as they think they are. People, A lot of times people aren't as busy as they say they are. Um, you know, I got friends that work in every fire department in North America pretty much. Yeah. You know, I always appreciate the guys that tell me the truth about how much work they truly do. People are like, oh, well, you know, this place does more fires than we do, and, you know, they don't need to train. And my experience has been kind of the exact opposite. You know, you go to those busy places, those are the companies that train the most. I still remember the first time I ever went to Rescue Company 3 in New York City. Covers the entire Bronx and Harlem. I walked in there, senior man, 36 years on the fire department. The junior man... 27 years on the fire department wow right six guys all of them within 27 to 36 years on the fire department i rode there for 10 hours they trained three times you know these guys 
work in one of the busiest hotbeds for fire duty in you know in the country, trained three times, thirty six years on the job. They did a firefighter removal drill. There's a thirty six year man carrying a guy up the stairs. I think that we we need to have that culture of of training and and that culture of going out there and doing a good job. I I tell my guys all the time, you know, like if we're showing up to work, you know, expect that we're training every day. You know, and it doesn't always have to be the blood, sweat, and tears stuff. Sometimes it could be simple. We sit around, uh, you know, the whiteboard, and we'll talk about, hey, you know, here's a building in our first due district. If you get a fire here, tell me what you're doing. Where's the ladder go? How many lengths do you need for the top floor? If you have to stretch a two and a half to the rear, how are you going to get there? You know, what type of construction is this? How do you know it's that type of construction? And then we also need the, okay, yeah, you know what? There's a guy down at the bottom of the stairs. You're the only guy with him. He falls through the floor. How are you going to get him up by yourself? You know, is there any easy way to do that? Nope. Nope. Right? <laughs> nope. It's you get him out to the front, and you drag him out, and you drop him down, and you rip your face piece off, and you puke your guts out. Right? right? And sometimes training needs to be that too. Yeah. First um, one to the bucket. Yeah, absolutely. Right? <laughs> so, uh, and, and I think that there needs to be a huge distinction between training and practice. Right. And often those two are misinterpreted. I think about training as I'm learning something. I'm picking something up. Being exposed to something. Being exposed. Maybe something new, a different way to do it. I'm becoming a better firefighter. I'm learning a new skill. Practice is I'm practicing the stuff that I know how to do and I'm practicing it till I can't get it wrong. Oftentimes, firefighters only ever practice. Right. Because all they ever do is okay, well, this is, you know, we go out the back and we pull, uh, you know, an inch and three-quarter line and then we force the forcible entry prop and then we mask up and then we check for water and then we're good. We'll pack it up and we'll go away. That stuff is extremely important to make sure that you can do that stuff day in and day out. But are you exposing yourself to anything new by doing that? No. So is it any surprise that when we pull up to a fire, Everybody always grabs an inch and three-quarter line, even though it's a two-and-a-half fire. Well, no, because that's all they've ever done. And the same stretch length. The same stretch, the same anything. So when you tell a crew to get a line around to the rear and they need to think about how many lengths they need or they need to um, use a static bed or they need to do a bundle stretch or whatever, is it any surprise that when we go to an actual fire and need to do that, it's a clusterfuck? Well, no, we've never practice that we've never trained on that stuff Mm -hmm. so pull an inch and three quarter line get it to the door yeah that's 90 percent of what we do that's our bread and butter right what about pulling that two and a half i see it all the time guys will send me videos and i watch and i'm like two car garage is sailing the second whole second floor sailing what's the first line off the truck the one they pull every single time Right. right it's like hey bro you know maybe a two and a half on this one our training tends to be stale tends to be stuff that we're comfortable with it tends to be stuff that's easy that's got to change right every once in a while you got to say to your guys hey you know what we're going to pull up to the exact same place we're going to pull up to every other time because that's where we have to train this time though i want to go in the other side and i'm going to park the truck 150 yards up the road and i want to see if you can get me an inch and three quarter line up to the front door now when you got to put 500 feet of hose into service okay because, you know, some of the construction areas that we have, they may be blocking the lane. You may have to get, a you know, an extended stretch. Some areas in my first due district that they have low-hanging bridges. you got to pull up right to that bridge and then, you know, hand stretch 400 feet of, uh, of hose to get to the front of the building. Do you know how to do it? 
Have you practiced it lately? You know, or did you just cop out and take the easy stretch? Because that's what we always do. A couple of guys yesterday were just playing a little bit of ping pong. Yeah. Later on in the day, like we were doing a lot of training through the day, so it came up about training and how much we should do. And so I just reframed it and not in a accusatory way. I wasn't trying to make anybody look bad. Um, it was just me and him. And I just said, like, how'd you get so good at playing ping pong? Do you think about every volley or, or do you like just react? Because you don't think about everything while you're doing that when you're good at it, right? And when you don't have to think about every single move you make, yep. then you would be thinking about how's the game going? How much better is this opponent than me? What can I, am I just playing defense now? Can I play around and be a little arrogant here? Can I play offense? You're feeling it out, right? This is the yep. what you're thinking about, and you would know this from playing sports in lacrosse. When you're not thinking about where the ball's going to land, in you're watching the whole game, right? And it sort of gave them a bit of pause that that's the idea with doing this stuff that we do every day. That I don't want to have to think about it because I got other things to think about. Do you agree with that? Uh, yeah, hundred yeah. percent. I mean, I remember uh, you know it was a pretty classic quote by Peyton Manning, and he said that um, he throws. I think he said it was 30,000 passes in practice for every throw he makes in a game. Wow. Right? That's pretty profound. You know, when guys think, you know, when you stop and you think about that, right? Probably the most vital thing that a professional athlete does is practice, train. How are we any different? If you show me a video of a company that, you know, at a fire that, you know, doesn't look like they know what they're doing, they're running around, they're throwing up, sliding up compartment doors, they're, uh, they stretch the wrong size line. I'll show you a crew that doesn't train very often, you know, and that's just a hard fact. You know, you show me a crew that gets off that rig and they have tool designations. They grab exactly what they should grab. Uh, they stretch the proper size line and the proper length line. Um, and you show me uh, and they do it like gentlemen, smooth, confident, no rushing, no running, no nothing like that. Uh, I'll show you a company that trains a lot. Mm. You know, and I don't really care how many times they go to fires, too, because, you know, I've gone to places that go to a lot of fires and they still suck. I think a lot of it comes back to how well you train. What's your perception on uh, different types of training then? So because I remember in the notes you mentioned online training. So obviously the practical application of training matters. It's key. But what are your what's your thought on other forms of training and integrating it into what we do? I think that. uh the problem is, is that a lot of departments want to do online training as a substitute for hands-on because now I don't have to get a burn building. I don't have to get the guys down there. I don't have to take the company out of service. I don't have to. They can just sit at the firehouse, do the online training, and now I have a piece of paper that says that they are certified or signed off or have done the training on XYZ. And again, that's a huge problem. That is a huge problem because at the end of the day, when you go at the door and you roll up and it's a two-story frame and it's sailing and mom's saying my kid's in there, that piece of paper doesn't do you shit. It doesn't mean a thing. How you've prepared yourself and your crew for that call is going to you know, is gonna matter for the outcome of that call. Mm -hmm. I think that there's an application. There's definitely places for online training uh, is if it bolsters what you're already doing if it makes it better uh certain things i can think of you know maybe a building construction thing on online about you know tilt up wall constructed buildings and you go on there 
and it's PowerPoint that's narrated and you watch that with your crew and you talk about it afterwards and you go do an, an inspection in one of those buildings in your in your first due area. I think that that's great. But when it comes down to the brass tacks of stretching hand lines, forcing doors, cutting roofs, doing searches, cutting people out of cars, whatever it may be, 99% of firefighters are hands-on learners. Hmm. And they need to get that stuff in their hands and they need to figure it out. Again, you know, 90% of the par- departments out there that uh, that do a lot of training, I would still say that they probably don't do enough. Constantly amazed at when I go and I and I ride out or I visit the busiest departments in the world. And every time I walk in there almost, you know, if it's a busy company that's very well respected, they're drilling, they're training. Mm-hmm. And it may not be, like I said, it's not always the blood, sweat, and tears training. I guarantee they're sitting around talking about the job. Right. You know, they're sharing stories, they're sharing things. And a lot of times that's where you learn the, you know, the the best nuggets, right? You know, Mm -hmm. I can remember I visited Boston Rescue One and I sat down and uh, it was funny. I walked in the front door and I was just like, hey, you know, how's it going, guys? You know, firefighter from outside of uh, the country, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, I'll show you around. So this guy starts showing me around the rig and I'm looking at this guy and I'm like, man, this guy's got to be every bit of 60 years old. Right. He's showing me the rig and I said, oh, how'd you get roped into this? He goes, what do you mean? I said, usually this is the job for the junior guy. He looked at me, he goes, I am the junior guy. I was like, what? And uh, yeah, four guys riding on the rescue that day, and uh, three of them had over 40 years on the job. And I remember just sitting down and, and, you know, they were just bullshitting at the kitchen table. It was just the way that they they weren't, you know, doing it because I was there. It's just the way they talk all the time, right? They're talking about this fire, that fire, and, oh, you know, that building. Oh, yeah, well, hey, those guys that got caught there, they should know that there's a rear fire escape on the uh, the Bravo Charlie side, you know. And I'm just sitting there listening to this, just soaking it in, going, you know, these guys are training right now. Mm-hmm. And they don't, they don't know that they are, mm-hmm. right? That's just the way that it is around that firehouse, man. But those guys are, you know, they're just firemen. You know, when they're at, again, you, you walk out the door. You go home to your family or you go home to whoever. I don't care if you ever think about the job ever again. But when you're here, be here now, right? right. Uh, when you walk through that door, be invested in trying to make the, mm-hmm. the place better. So you can get back home. Yeah. You know, I remember my, when my rookie walked through the door, you know, I said to him, uh, I said, you don't owe it to me to be good at this job. I said, you owe it to my family to be good at this job mm-hmm. and your family. Um, that's who you owe it to. So just remember that when you walk through the door, I don't settle for less than being here perfect. now and, yeah. and you being in this, you know, right. you had a shitty day, you know, you, you know, your kid was up, you know, and all that. I get it. I need a hundred percent out of you today though. And if you can't give me that, don't come, right. you know, you get 10 sick days for a reason. <laughs> Use one of them. Beyond the fundamentals, uh, you mentioned, to me that was special ops in the Canadian service. We need a wake-up call. What do you mean by that? I just think that we, because they are a low-frequency calls, I think that we just feel that we'll figure it out when we get there. I had a chief tell me one time, well, I can't justify spending $80,000 for something that we might not use in a year. And I kind of looked at him. I was kind of taken back, and I said, you might use it three times this year, though. And it might save three lives. And trust me, I get the the world that we live in now. Chiefs have to struggle for every penny, every nickel for everything they, they have. You know, it's definitely not a job that I would want to do. You know, they definitely have 
you know, an uphill battle trying to secure things. But the thing that I just kind of didn't really understand about it is they don't feel that it's necessary. I understand if you feel it's necessary and you go pound the table down at council and they say, no, no, there's no money. And you come back to your guys and say, hey, you know what? We should be doing X, Y, Z, but we can't because there just isn't any money. I get that. But the fight was fought. But the fight was fought. Exactly. I don't understand the whole, ah, we don't need to do that. Okay, well, what do we do if we get a trench call? Um, We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. Uh, I think it's a recipe for getting one of our guys hurt or killed. Um, you know, somebody sent me some pictures. It was a department in the, in the in the States, didn't have a trench rescue team, and they had a trench rescue. You know, the department did the best with what they had, and they saved the guy's life. And I went, wow, you know, that's that's great. You know, but I looked at the shoring and stuff that they used, and I was like, I don't think they understand how close they were to killing somebody at this call. You know, one of the, you know, great instructor, a guy by the name of Ron Zalaki, he's a trench rescue guy um, from Michigan. And I went and taken a bunch of classes with him. And he always said, you know, if I take a can of orange spray paint and I spray paint an X on each side of the wall of that trench and I go down there and I dig that guy out and he, I save his life, did we do it right? Did we do it safely? Or did we just get lucky? Did that X on each side of the wall, did that hold that thing up? And was that the proper way to shore up that trench? Or did we just get lucky? And I think that that fire department got lucky. That's a fair assessment. And I think that we need to, uh, you know, again, I look at the way that things are done, you know, in some uh, states uh, down in the U.S., you know, regionalized special operations teams in Michigan, right? There's, they have, I think there's seven regions in the state, and each one of those regions is responsible for having special operations for each one of those Um you know, you have me have 50 fire departments in each region. In each region, they pay into the into in supporting having a trench team, a, a structural collapse team, rope team, confined space, hazmat, all that kind of stuff. And then, yeah, if small rural fire department has an incident, they send that team to them. Funding that stuff is, is going to be a, a challenge. But we shouldn't wait until we kill somebody in it to go, hey, maybe we should ha- we should be proactive in it. Um, and I just find that that mutual aid inner workings of different agencies is definitely lacking mm-hmm. up here. You know, mutual aid is, you know, unheard of, you know, the way that it is in, in you know, a lot of places in the States, right? So what do you think we're doing better now? Or we know more about now than previous generations? What what are we doing better than ever before? You know, it's, that's, it's interesting, right? I, I definitely think, uh, you know, UL and NIST, with some of the studies that they've done, we have a better understanding of fire behavior than we probably ever have before. Or do we? <laughs> um, you know, I think it's 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 brought up a lot more questions. You know, it's brought up just as many questions as it has answers. But I, I think that there's a huge divide, right, right now in the fire service, and there's the guys that, you know, have a ton of experience fighting fires, and then, you know, they don't really like the guys that, you know, wear lab coats and pocket protectors and figure out all that lab type stuff. I kind of sit here in the middle going, you guys are both fighting about the same thing. Right. You guys are both saying the same thing here. I definitely think that the UL and NIST didn't come up with things that a lot of people that went to a lot of fires back in the day knew. You know, I remember talking to Mike Lombardo one time and he was just like, he was telling me it wasn't called a flow path. 
right? But he was telling me, right, if you take that window and you're in the, you know, you're on the top floor and the engine doesn't have water in the fire, you're going to draw that fire towards you. And, you know, so venting doesn't always equal cooling and, you know, all that kind of stuff that ULNS proved, right? Yeah, he just knows action he A equals he, he result it. B, yeah. You know, and how did he know it? By going to fires, mm-hmm. right? By, you know, the senior men that he learned from teaching him that stuff. So I think that a lot of guys knew that stuff. ULNS proved it. And I think that it's great because, yeah, it's, it's amazing that, you know, Mike Lombardo of the Buffalo Fire Department knew that stuff. It's great that Bob Pressler from the FDNY knew that stuff. It's great that a lot of those places knew that stuff. But how about the rural guy that works, you know, in a very small combination fire department in the middle of, uh, you know, Iowa? What about we, him? We can't all get it handed down yeah, person to person. We can't. We, we didn't all get a chance to work at, you know, the same uh, fire volume that those guys do. We don't get a chance to work with the same people and have that passed down. So I think what ULNIST has done is they've put that stuff out and they have made it accessible for guys that don't go to a lot of fires, guys that don't get a lot of runs, guys that historically, you know, haven't had senior guys passing that stuff down to them. Or have a hard time understanding the concept. Yeah, you know, it's just like guys are pissed off because you're calling it a flow path now. I was like, you know, really, we're going to argue about the semantics of the whole thing now? Like, who gives a shit? (laughs) You know, call it whatever you want. Just understand how it works. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, you know, our understanding of, of fire behavior second to none nowadays and you know i look at some of the guys out there that are teaching some of the stuff uh, on fire behavior top-notch stuff and i think it's great that it's accessible to everybody and not just the guys that that work in busy urban uh, settings but i also think that you know if you take a guy that you know that's been to ten thousand fires in his career you can't discount what he's seen too right so and i think that there's definitely guys that put a lot of stock into everything that the science says and they discredit guy that's been to 10,000 fires in his career and I think that we need to just stop and listen to both sides we're not going to get anywhere if we're all screaming from one side or the other we need to yeah find the middle somewhere and start the conversation from the middle absolutely yeah you know I listen to the you know things that the urban guys say and I listen to things that uh, you know some of the the newer guys say and I just go you know really we're fighting about the same thing we're just pissed off about what we're calling it this week. I think it's an amazing time in the fire service. I think that, uh, you know, I've enjoyed all the UL and this stuff that, that, that's been put out. I don't necessarily agree with some of the messages that people take that information with and put it out there. The other thing that people have to realize is that not every fire department shows up with 50 guys ready to work in four minutes. You know, some fire departments show up with two guys and there's 15 minute wait between those two guys showing up and the next two guys showing up. So I think, you know, you have to base your tactics on your manpower and your building construction. Two in, two out doesn't always add up. No, absolutely not, right? right? You offered up a couple calls that uh, stood out for you that you're willing to chat about. Why don't you uh, tell me about those? Um, Yeah, so uh, one of the uh, first ones that we were kind of chatting about before was, was in 2006 when we still had just one truck full-time in the city. How many years on the job? So at that time, I had had about five years on the job. Okay. We were working a night shift, a uh, warm night. Woken up probably around 4 o'clock in the morning uh, for the report of a house fire. Uh, so we got in the in the rig. We turn out, and uh, as soon as we pulled out of the station, you could see the column of smoke, you know, no doubter. 
it was uh, it was a good one. On the way there, the update was the police were on scene reporting that there was a kid trapped inside. Uh, you know, hey, Super Bowl fire, right? It's the one that you prepare for. You know, all the blood, sweat, and tears out back of the fire. I was pulling all that hose, rebedding it. This is the one. This is the one that you prepare for, right? So turned on to White Drive. And, uh, yeah, you could just see the smoke just chugging. We rolled around the corner. You could see it uh, down at the end of the street. Wood frame construction thing was just sailing. Two-car garage in the front. Fire had extended up and uh, started taking a hold of the second floor. Attic was blown through the roof. We roll up, park the rig. I was uh, sitting in the two-seat, which is our nozzle position. Hop out of the rig. Cop comes running up. He says, yeah, uh, neighbors are confirming there's a kid inside. I said, they know where he is. He didn't know. Fair enough. So bedrooms are going to be the priority. So, you know, the whole front of the house is on fire, so we had to stretch a line. Uh, there's also two cars on fire in the driveway. So we had to knock down a lot of the fire just to even get to the front door. Uh, we had wires down on the one side of the house, on the Bravo side. We had a large chain link fence on the on the, on the the Delta side. So going through the front door was going to be kind of the priority, right? Uh, we didn't have a real good idea of where the guy was, the kid was. So, uh, you know, VES was going to be marginal at best. So we knocked the fire down around the front door, got up there. We forced the front door. Me and another guy, uh, we got in there uh, pretty quick. Got upstairs to do a primary. Fire was rolling over our heads pretty much, the, you know, as we were going up the stairs. Uh, and we basically just leapfrogged. He went in the first room, and I stayed out in the hallway as he started to work his way back towards me. I was in the next room, and we just kind of leapfrogged back and forth. Uh, got most of the, the primary done on the top floor uh, when a lot of the ceiling started to come down. Started falling down uh, around us. Kind of stuck with the search, finished up. Uh, it was a bathroom that was the last one. We started coming down the stairs, and, you know, the whole floor, it was sailing pretty good. Uh, really, really hot. Uh, came down, did a primary search on the ground floor. Again, uh, conditions were pretty much zero. I said, okay, we got to get to the basement. So we found the, uh, the interior stairs, made our way around to the back side of them, got down in the basement. It was uh, still, again, pretty smoky, zero visibility in the basement. Uh, the guy was with Steve. He had the uh, the TIC, and he said, I think I can see something down at the end of the hallway. I was like, okay, well, what do you see? He's like, I don't know. I just see something that's that's hot. So, I, okay, so we crawled down to the end of the hallway, and literally my face just bumped up into the uh, the bed that the kid was laying on, and I looked up, and I could see his foot right in front of my face. So, yeah, we uh, uncovered him. He was unconscious, just radioed out. Primary search was positive. Grabbed him. I ended up grabbing him around the waist, and... You know, it's, I always laugh, always tell guys, you know, picking up someone that's dead weight is a lot different than picking up the rescue Randy when you do search training back at the firehouse. Mm -hmm. You know, it's different than trying to get your buddy to go, hey, pretend that you're unconscious and I'm going to drag you. It's, I always say it's kind of like picking up a bowl of jello, right? A bag of jello just slides right through your hands. Uh, so we picked him up and uh, carried him up the stairs, got him out in the front lawn. EMS was waiting. I dumped the kid down on the, the gurney. And I looked down at him, and he wasn't moving. He wasn't nothing. He was just covered in soot. I just remember thinking, nah, I think we were late, late on this one. So we went back to work, just trying to put the fire out. We extinguished the fire. We were just starting to pack up, you know, it was an hour later. The medics that brought him to the hospital came back to the scene, and the one medic walked up to me and just said, hey, kid's talking. He's going to be okay. Wow. I was, they're sending him to Hamilton to go in the hyperbaric chamber because of the CO, and yeah. 
He said, but he's talking and he's going to be okay. And, you know, amazing feeling. I tell this to a couple of people and uh, I haven't really shared it with too many, though. But, you know, at the time, the kid was maybe 18, 19 years old. You know, had a lot of problems. Big problems with, uh, you know, drugs and alcohol and stuff like that. Was last year? Yeah, last year in the summertime. Uh, you know, so more than 10 years later, uh, he friend requested me on Facebook. Wow. Yeah, and he uh, lives up in the Yukon now, runs a gold mining business, has a wife, kids, the whole nine yards. So that was a pretty uh, pretty amazing feeling. That's intense. Yeah, you know, it's a pat on the back, you know, and, and a good job for all the training and stuff and the preparation that you make uh, trying to get to that point, right? So, yeah, it was a, you know, pretty great day at the firehouse that day. Amazing. And you received an award for it. Uh, yeah, so me and Steve, the uh, the other guy I was uh, in there with, um, we both got uh, the medal for on uh, firefighter bravery, mm-hmm. Ontario medal for firefighter bravery for that. You know, humbled to receive it. I wear it for every firefighter that ever uh, laced them up, though, right? You know, it, it's it's kind of one of those things, right? Everybody has to play their part in order for a good outcome to happen. Uh, one person messes up, and that you know that might not happen. Driver doesn't get to the scene safely, that co- that rescue doesn't happen. Driver doesn't catch the plug, doesn't get us water when he needs to, that rescue doesn't happen. The officer had the line and uh, maintained the line, keeping the stairway clear for us. You know, if he did, if he misses his job, you know, the fire gets in behind us, that rescue doesn't happen. You know, so everybody has to play their part in order for that to, to have a positive outcome that it did. That's why you spend the hours out back of the firehouse doing that stuff is for that call. You know, I've had a couple other fires since that point uh, that have come in as reported kids trapped. They've all turned out to be negative, but um, again, that's that's why we're there. You treat them you the know, same way. Treat them the exact same way and, and give those people the best chance of survival that they have. One of the guys I work with, super squared away dude, he's our acting captain. Uh, they had a fire. It was a couple years after the fire that we had. You know, came in, report a person trapped. They roll up this, uh, they roll up on this thing, and uh, this house is just sailing. There was one window in the entire house, six thousand square foot house, one window in the entire house, not showing fire from it. The living maid goes, "He is in this room right here." They go, "Okay." They smash out the window. They climb in. Uh, it was said it was so hot in there. They actually ended up in the ensuite bathroom. And he said it was so hot in there that it had melted the bathtub. Wow. They got in there. Uh, the nurse said he's bedridden, so he's he's here. Uh, they got in there. They did a search of the bedroom. He wasn't in the bedroom. Just as they were finishing up the search, the top of the door was starting to burn away. And they were like, we're done. And they ended up bailing out and ended up flashing over not very long after they got out the window. Hmm. Um, so it turned out to be a, a fatal fire. The guy was found down the hallway. You know, he says, he goes, I have absolutely zero regret about that fire. He goes, I can literally sleep every single night and know we did everything we possibly could for that to have a good outcome. He said, if I had a never went in that window and they had a found the guy four feet inside that window, I would never be able to sleep again. Yeah. Or maybe do the job again. Yeah. So I think that a lot of guys, you know, forget about that. You know, I. I think uh, it would be a hard thing to do to wake up every day and have to think about that. You know, did I do everything I could? So we prepare ourselves, you know, just because we can't search the whole house doesn't mean we don't search any of it. 
you know, we stretch lines, we do everything properly, and hopefully, you know, our training pays off and they have good outcomes. Agreed. You know, it doesn't always happen that way, though. Mm-hmm. So. You said there were a lot of lessons learned from uh, a call where one of your brothers went through the floor. Yeah. Uh, so I was working a shift change. Uh, call came in as a smoke in the area call. And usually what are smoke in the area calls? Someone burning leaves out in their backyard or something like that, right? So two truck response, both full-time crews. So we turn out, you know, we got in fairly quick. As we turned onto the block, first new company got there and they reported that it was a working fire. So we were right on their heels. We pull in and uh, the neighbor comes out. I get off the rig. I was in the irons position. So I get out, I grab the irons. I start walking up to the front of the house. Next door neighbor comes over and says, 100% she's home and she's in there, right? Her car's in the driveway. She's a widower. She's uh, retired. She's never outside of that house. She's home. They're like, okay. So the guys, first in crew, got the door forced. They were stretching the line in as uh, as uh, we were coming up to the, f- to the top of the stairs. And uh, one of the things I noticed right away is that the smoke wasn't lifting off the floor. So... Anytime we force the door, right, we want to look for the uh, the three L's, right? Life, layout, and lift, right? If it's not lifting, it's probably below you. So I saw that it wasn't lifting, so I'm like, you know, this kind of looks like a basement fire. So we mask up, and the guys are already in there. They had thought that the fire was on the second floor, so they had started bringing the line up to the second floor, and me and uh, my partner were assigned to search. We got in there. And as soon as we crawled in the front door, I got my head down low and I could see the fire burning through the floor in the back. So it was a basement fire and it was in the, and it was burning, already burning through the floor into the, uh, into the first floor. So I called the guys down off the top floor, told them to redirect the line, get it down into the basement. We started a primary search on the top floor, got the top floor cleared pretty quick, uh, came back down, got on the main floor. And I said to my partner, I said, Hey bro, I said, be careful when we're working this back corner. I said, uh, fire's right below us it's already burned through the floor over here so just be careful so we start searching still zero visibility couldn't see nothing and uh, we crawled down the hallway and he crawled and started making the uh, the left hand search in the uh, dining room uh, sorry the living room and the kitchen area and uh, yeah I still remember to this day he made it to the back wall turned around started coming back towards me he just yelled my name he yells brass I look up and he fell through the floor mm. buried right up to his armpits Huge chug of black smoke comes out right behind him. It's one of those things that, uh, again, you know, your your training will dictate how that thing turns out, right? You know, I dropped my tools. I laid down on the ground. I hooked my floor, uh, my foot on the uh, the backside of the wall, and I kind of laid out, and I was able to grab a hold of them to hold them up into position. Mm-hmm. You know, and everyone's always like, oh, you know, make sure you call a mayday if anything ever happens. Well, my hands are around him. He's holding on to the frame of the of the door. How do you call a mayday? Can't get to your radio. It was an interesting thing. So I just was, you know, yelling back, trying to hope that the uh, one of the other companies that were operating would hear us. The company officer we were with, he ends up, he was down at the end of the hall having a face-to-face at the front door with the incident commander. He hears me screaming, comes walking down the hall, or crawling down the hallway, comes around the corner, and he's just like, oh, my God. <laughs> you know, so he was able to kind of get out there, and we were able to both grab him and pull him up and, uh, and out of the hole. So we ended up finishing the primary search. Turns out she wasn't in there. You know, tons of things that we learned from that fire, right? Thermal imaging camera. When was the last time you did thermal imaging training? Probably not very often, right? 
it's one of those tools that uh, I think everyone has one and not a lot of people know how to use it. You know, there's more to just looking through the screen and changing the batteries, right? Um, that camera will absolutely lie to you if you're if you don't know how to read it properly. Tile floor hid the fact that the floor had completely burned out from below it. You know, he checked it with the thermal imaging camera. Yeah, our department experienced the same thing. The scratch yeah. coat and the grout's holding it up. Yep. It was one of those things, right, you know, which really kind of drove me to start doing more thermal imaging training. And, you know, I started doing quite a bit of that for my guys and teaching the department and ended up, you know, making some contacts down, uh, you know, ended up learning from one of the guys who's probably the best thermal imaging guy on the planet. But it was one of those things that really drove it home for me. Uh, another one was, uh, you know, just building construction, right, in general, and kind of understanding building construction more, kind of drove that home. Was it a newer home, uh, manufactured Joyce? Or was Brand Spanking. So right. this was this was kind of an interesting thing about it. Um, half the house engineered TGIs, the other half, dimensional lumber. So I was kind of curious as to why this house would be half built dimensional lumber and half built TGI. And it's brand, brand new yeah. house. Yeah. Hmm. So we ended up talking to a, a contractor that was building houses in the area, and I showed him some pictures, and I was like, why would they do this? And he's like, he kind of laughed. He goes, do you want me to tell you the truth? I said, yeah. He goes, well, he goes, halfway through this construction process of this you know, area that we were building, he goes, um, we switched over from using TG, uh, uh, dimensional lumber to TGIs. I was like, okay. He goes, this was probably one of the last houses built, and they had some of both left over and they're the same size, and most people wouldn't care, so they built it with both. Floor is a floor. Floor is a floor, right? Which is a total game changer for firefighters, but they don't think about that stuff, right? They're there to build that house. So mm. uh, the dimensional lumber was charred, totally fine, totally strong. You could park a car on it still. The TGIs had all burned away. The only thing that was left was the uh, the, the tile floor and the, uh, the grout basically that was holding it up. So... Yeah, it was definitely an, an interesting call. And, and again, one of the other things, you know, you can't always trust the person that's telling you 100% that there's somebody in there. Or that there's not. Or that there's not, you know, absolutely, right? I'm still amazed that some fire departments don't do a primary search when somebody says everybody's out. We hear it almost every call. Yeah. You get the radio transmission for first or second crew that say families evacuated, they say everyone's out. I worry sometimes that everyone sort of dials back a little bit because now it's just property. I think 100% they do. I remember a good friend of mine, he's a district chief, in a, you know, fairly big fire department in Florida, and he showed me a helmet cam video. So he works on a heavy rescue company. They roll up. His house is, you know, is going pretty good. Get he, And his helmet camera's going. He gets out, grabs his tools, walks up, and it's a uh, father and uh, his kids out in the front. He says, everybody's out of the house. It's just me and the kids. I say, okay. Uh, so the friar's just blowing out the front. And uh, the guy turns to his partner and says, hey, let's get to the back, see if we can get in the back, do a primary. So they get around to the back, and uh, they step up on the back porch, and the back door is kicked in. It's like laying on its side. They pull the door out, and they kind of make their way in. They get in about maybe 20 feet, 15, 20 feet. And on the video, all you see is feet, right? There's a guy laying there. They grab him, drag him out. Uh, they end up saving his life. Uh, what had happened was, dad, single father with his kids, lives there. House catches fire, grabs his kids, gets out of the house. Neighbor behind him says, oh, my God, 
It's Jim and the kids. That's their house. I know they're at their home. He hops his fence, kicks the back door in, tries to get in and start looking for him. He's overcome. You never know. And you hear so many different times about, you know, oh, the, you know, his kid was supposed to sleep over, wasn't feeling well, came home, house catches fire, family thinks everybody's out, and then they find him afterwards. You know, you should treat every single one like there's somebody in there until we prove otherwise. And like I said, just because you can't search the whole thing doesn't mean you search the rest of it. So, Before I let you go. Yeah. People listen to podcasts like this. They run into you or, or someone else. They're inspired. It doesn't matter if they, they're just about to get on the job. They've been on a couple of years. They've been on for a long time. But they feel overwhelmed or a little confused as to, what do I do with this now? Where do I start? Where would you recommend that they start? What's the first thing they should start changing or looking towards? One of the biggest things I would say is find a mentor. Find someone that's into the job that wants the same things out of the career that you do. Again, my old lacrosse coach said, you know, you want to be good at this job, be a student of the game, surround yourself with good cross players, and by osmosis, you will become, you know, you will become a better player, right? Surround yourself with good people. So it's not necessarily picking a skill. It's finding the people, yeah. and they will lead you to the skills. Yeah, and maybe one that you didn't even know you liked. Maybe you didn't think you were a rope guy, you know. You find a mentor, and all of a sudden, you know, maybe rope's my thing. Be a lifelong learner, I mean, is the big one. I mean, I still am amazed and humbled. One of the greatest ex- experiences in my career was uh, I taught at HROC, the high-rise conference in uh, Escambia County, Florida. And I taught a class on uh, suburban heavy rescue company operations. I get ready to, to start my, my presentation. I walk out there and in, in the classroom, sitting in the front row, is Bill Gustin, Miami-Dade, Florida, 42 years on the fire department legend absolute legend and sitting next to him is captain morris wow right 45 years on the fire department both sitting in my class trying to learn something from me did you have the who am i yeah (laughs) every single day i have that right right? but um you know uh it's got to be somebody yeah but you know it just kind of struck a chord with me that said you know what these guys and one of them's retired and he's still here and he's still learning and he's still trying to be better and he's still trying to pick things up be a lifelong student of the game, man. Find a mentor. Get involved. When you're here, be here now. It's tough, right? Because a lot of the times I see these guys and they're, you know, full of piss and vinegar and they get on the fire department and, you know, you see them five years later and you're just worn down, beat up. They show up to the firehouse every single day and they... Deflated. Def- yeah, absolutely. That's our failure. Absolutely it is. It, I find it crushing to me that I go, you know what? There's some guy that I thought was going to be a rock star on this job, and he is just defeated. You might be able to get him back. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You know, I don't uh, I don't write him off. And I'll reach out to guys, man. Guys always laugh at me, right? Like, I'll call up anybody, sometimes just to talk about the job. If I'm off for two weeks, I start to get antsy, right? I'll call up <laughs> friends of mine. I'll be just like, hey, what's going on at your firehouse? You know, what's you guys catching anything? Tons of guys out there like that. Don't get confined by the four walls of your firehouse. There's a lot of learning. There's a lot of uh, experience out there, guys that are just willing to share it. Find someone uh, with like-minded interests as yourself and uh, surround yourself with those good people. Speaking of being students of the fire service and finding people and being happy you did, I'm glad I found you. August, I'll be seeing you. I'll, oh be yeah? in your, I'll be in your class. Oh, nice. So Good I'm, uh, stuff. I'm looking forward to that. That's going to be an interesting class. 
Jeff Clayton's coming to help out, Johnny Cadiz. But kind of an interesting thing and kind of an anomaly in the fire service is my entire crew is going to be there teaching with me. Oh, great. Right, so I'm, I'm pretty, super stoked now. I'm pretty, I'm pretty happy <laughs> about it. You know, like I said, I, uh, I'm blessed every day that I get to go work yeah, with those guys. So. Right on. Um, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. It's yeah, going to be a lot of fun. It's been a pleasure to finally meet you, man. Absolutely. You as well. Keep doing this. You know, sometimes lets guys know that they're not alone. You know, a good friend of mine, Tom Kenny, he's uh, retiring soon. He's a captain in Hyannis, Massachusetts. Probably one of the best rescue guys ever, you know, on, on the planet. His thing, as he always says, is it's okay to love your job. I think having a podcast like this lets guys know that it's okay to love this job. Yeah, you're going to get guys that are going to break your balls about it, but it lets, lets you know you're not alone out there in this universe. Fuck it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. You know, anyone knows me knows I don't give a fuck what people think <laughs> about <right>. me. So. <laughs> Good for you. Yeah. All right, man. All right, take care. Awesome, bro. Appreciate right, talk it. Talk to you. See you. Thanks.